tithes and offerings. Uh, Lord, I just thank you so much for you. I love your presence. I love that you are faithful to come and be with us and inhabit the praises of your people. I love that you are here, that you did not stay in that grave. You are not a dead God, but you rose again. Jesus, you are alive forever. And because of our trust and our belief and our faith in you as our Lord and Savior, each one of us in this room are alive forever. In the name of Jesus, hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Well, at this time, as we receive our tithes and offerings, I want to welcome Wayne to the stage. Would you please welcome Wayne Ferris as he gives the word today? Thanks, my brother. Amen. Come on. How are you this morning? Gosh, I'll tell you what, you're looking good. Tucker, those new specs, man, you're looking sharp, dude. Look at you. All of a sudden, you just all smart and everything. Hey, today we continue our We Believe series, and I wanted to take a moment, just reflect, look at all this. We have been through some pretty deep waters, amen? I mean, that's a lot to cover, and we have spent a lot of time covering it. But I want to say this morning with all sincerity, and I hope that you'll join me in this sentiment, that I want to thank and appreciate our senior pastor for taking the time it commits to walk through a series like this. When other pastors are thinking it not cool to preach about things like civil government, we at LifeSpring know the principles of honor and biblical authority are as true today as they ever were. And when it wasn't always popular to teach on tithes and the deep issues of church relationships, our pastor cares enough about us to not just kind of hand-pick the easy, palatable verses to teach, but he teaches the fullness of God's Word, choosing to give all of it to us. And when other teachers are searching Google for the latest trends and the felt needs we need to address in church, our senior pastor is searching the scriptures, trusting that the Holy Spirit knew what he was doing and knew what you would need today, what your felt needs would be, and it's really found in the Word. And this is the result of something that a lot of pastors are not brave enough and courageous enough to do. So thank you very, very much. Today we've landed on the very first article in the Foursquare Church Declaration of Faith. It's right up here in the upper left. Holy Scriptures. Article number one. Article number one. And it's number one, and that's why Pastor Dan asked me to preach about it, because I'm number one. Actually, it has nothing to do with that. It's the fact that he knew I'd be at home watching the Daytona 500 if he didn't give me something to do. (laughs) It's all good. It's all good. Jeff Gordon's last day, total 500, and I'm not there. It's article number one. There's a reason, by the way, that it's the first article of our four-square declaration of faith. And that is simply this. We believe that it's foundational. You know, Jesus said in the Gospel of John that I am the living bread of life. And we also read later in John that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, right? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was the Word incarnate. And we also know that Isaiah prophesied a word from God that He, God, would lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a corner stone. A cornerstone, a sure foundation. Paul writes later in Ephesians that we are all members of God's household built on the foundation of which Christ Jesus is the chief 
cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the foundation of the foundation. The key piece of key pieces, if you will. It's the place that is most foundational to make sure that everything else is lined up and level. It is the one spot that all plumb lines are drawn from and drawn to. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the cornerstone. The Word is foundational. It's article number one for us. So would you stand with me? We're going to read together our four-score declaration of faith about the Holy Scriptures. It's long, but it is good. Okay? I'm just telling you, it is good. And so I'm going to get myself a little sip of water so we can read this thing together because it's deep and I want to be a part of it. Are you ready? We believe that the Holy Bible is the Word of the living God. Immutable, steadfast, unchangeable as its author, the Lord Jehovah, that it was written by holy men of old as they were moved upon and inspired by the Holy Spirit, that it is a lighted lamp to guide the feet of a lost world from the depths of sin and sorrow to the heights of righteousness and glory, an unclouded mirror that reveals the face of a crucified Savior, a plumb line to make straight the life of each individual and community, a sharp two-edged sword to convict of sin and evil doing, a strong cord of love and tenderness to draw the penitent to Christ Jesus, a balm of Gilead, inbreathed by the Holy Spirit, that can heal and quicken each drooping heart, the only true ground of Christian fellowship and unity, the loving call of an infinitely loving God, the solemn warning, the distant thunder of the storm of wrath and retribution that shall overtake the unheeding, a signpost that points to heaven, a danger signal that warns from hell, the divine, supreme, eternal tribunal by whose standards all men, nations, creeds, and motives shall be tried, and He gave it to you in your lap and in your heart. Somebody give Him a praise. You may be seated as we pray. Father God, today... We need a fresh inbreathing of Your Word. Lord God, I know that in my life, You have brought me to this place where I need a new fragrance. I need to breathe in a new, a living, living, living breath of Your Word. Would You make that true for all of us this morning? We believe that You, Jesus, are the Word incarnate. And we love You today. Meet us where we are at. But speak, Lord. Just Quietly enough that we might be forced to bend our ear and our hearts enough to listen. Amen.
Amen and amen. The Word of God, the Holy Scripture, the lamp unto our feet and light unto our path, the sword of the Spirit, the manna daily given to us for our souls. I'm going to forget later on today to mention these, so I want to do it right now really quick. If you have not got a life journal, uh, we have these out back available to you. They're just daily readings, daily scriptures, opportunities for you to fill in and spend some time in the Word and actually do some application. What does it mean to you that day? The front of the Life Journal, there's opportunities to record your prayers. There's also um, the daily reading plan. And, of course, you can read whatever scriptures you want every day, but it's kind of fun as a church and as a community to know that the rest of the people at LifeSpring are reading these same scriptures and drinking from this same well every day. It's really exciting. And that's in these... You know, I just encourage you every year to get yourself a new one. Just start every year. Have a year's worth. I mean, what a great thing, five or six years to look back and go, this, these are seasons of my life, notes that I took. And I know a lot of you, like myself, I use my phone as my primary Bible and the phone apps. And there's a devotional app there for that, too. Personally, for me, I've not gone that far yet. I, I, there's something about putting pen to paper that really seeds the thoughts for me. And so I use this. Secondly, we have out there these uh, scripture booklets. Um, we have them by theme. This particular one's on protection and safety. These are actually from Kathy Ford, New Heart Dimensions. Uh, she's done a, such a tremendous job. There are several out there that you can buy. She's given us a couple, and we bought some through the years of different themes. Again, she's just taken scriptures that are, again, kind of gathered by, by theme, and she's personalized the scripture so that you can read it, and it means something. Um, Psalm 91, this is for protection and safety. I dwell in the shelter of the Most High and find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Lord, you alone are my refuge, my place of safety, my God, and I will trust in you. My wife and I have fallen in love with these. You'll find them in our nightstands. You'll find one sitting next to the kitchen sink. You'll find one next to the bathroom sink in our house. Um, They're just a great little tool. These are out in the lobby, and, and if you haven't done so through the months or years, make sure you grab some new ones today. Now, I have to tell you, that I start today off with a little bit of a fear. Now, those of you who know me are going, yeah, well, that's Wayne. He's always afraid of home. See, I fear, and I'm going to be honest with you, this comes from my own experience, my own roller coaster walk with the Word of God, if you will. I fear that we can too easily move past this particular subject with just a little too much ease. It's just the Bible. It's just the Scripture. Of course, it's one of our foundational declarations of faith. Of course, we're going to spend a Sunday doing it, right? See, we can swing right past this particular portion of our four-square credo with just a little too much familiarity. Now, don't get me wrong. My whole point today is that we should be familiar with the Scriptures. But there's a difference between really being familiar, knowing, and a spirit of familiarity, a sort of comfortableness and ease if you will, right? And so that's my fear. I fear as Christians, particularly the longer we walk with the Lord, that somehow it becomes something that's too familiar. And somehow it stays peacefully and comfortably just right outside of our true ethos. Your ethos, ethos is a Greek word that means character of substance. It's that foundational thing that the rest of your behaviors and your life and your beliefs of a person, of a society, of a culture are built on. So the question that I have to ask myself, and I've been struggling with this lately, and the question I ask you this morning, is the Word of God 
truly a part of your ethos? Is it right up there with breathing, eating, everything you truly need? Or is it sort of equal to your little mini daily devotional book that's inspirational, your checkbook, your Facebook, and all those things that we sort of spend some time with, maybe even daily, or when it's convenient? Maybe it's just a a family heirloom, special book in your life. Maybe it has sentimental value. Maybe like my mother and my grandmother before her, your Bible's that place where you tuck those poems, somebody's memorial card, those special pictures you don't want to lose. You press the flowers, and every time you open it, half that stuff falls out. Maybe it's just a special... Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against having mementos and special keepsakes. In fact, if I told you otherwise, my family would stand up and walk out of the room right now because they know that I have the spiritual gift of attaching sentimental value to inanimate objects. And all of a sudden, they become something very meaningful for me. We've got a plethora of Bibles and versions that Cindy and I have collected through the years all over our house. And the truth is, some of them are special mementos to me. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, When I was a kid, I didn't grow up in a Christian home per se. In fact, for a long time, I didn't know anything about the Lord. My family doesn't go to church. They're not spirit-filled. I did learn through the years that there's more of a foundation there than I ever gave them credit for, and I'm very thankful for what I did have. I'm very thankful that my parents do believe in God and loved Him. Um, And when I went through a really tough time, at seven years old, my parents divorced, and most most of us have been through that. That's nothing new. It was a difficult time for a seven-year-old, as you can imagine. A lot of change. The real trouble came about a year later. uh, My mother was brutally attacked, and I won't go into the details. Um, But I was picked up at school by my mom's best friend, told that I was going to her house for the evening. I did not know the truth of what happened that day for years, until years later. My mom's boyfriend at the time, who would later become my stepdad, um, met me at the house, and I thought he was going to take me. I loved him. He lived with us. But he didn't for a while. In fact... We didn't move in with him for another year or so. So I spent a year living in the basement of my mom's best friend house trying to figure out why my mom spent months and months in a hospital. Literally, the next morning, went to a different school. It was completely uprooted. And it was tough. My Aunt Sandy, who some of you know, she was a part of our church years ago, and a lot of you have met my mom and the sisters before my mom passed. The three, three of them are just something else. They'll take over a town in no time. They're four foot nothing, um, Crazy personalities, you know, big hair, big personalities, big everything. Laugh, laugh, and laugh at the party. My Aunt Sandy came over, and she was like another mom to me. And I remember her sitting with me in the basement of that house, telling me that she couldn't tell me what was going on, but that she wanted me to know I'd be okay. And it's the first time I ever felt a spiritual connection at all. I was eight years old. And she handed me my first Bible. And some of you are familiar with it. It's that old hardcover children's Bible with that picture of Jesus and the lamb around his shoulders. And I don't remember much about reading it back then, but I did read it. In fact, in my third grade handwriting in the front, it says, Going to New School, Sunny Terrace or Mountain View, and a Bible given to me by my Aunt Sandy, you know. And I wrote the year and everything. And I just remember the picture. That's what I remember. I remember... Thinking, first of all, if Aunt Sandy tells me I'm going to be okay, I'm going to be okay, because she's never lied to me. But second of all, if Jesus can hold me 
like he's holding this lamb, I'm going to be okay. That Bible is really important to me. I still have it today. Oh, one Bible I wish I had. Two years of Bible school notes. Two years, all that money, Bible school, a Bible, all the notes and wisdom and knowledge. And the day that I moved home from Bible school, had my car completely packed, trunk lit up, stuffed. I had to go teach at a youth group that night. When I came out of youth group that night, my car was stolen. Found it about a mile down the road, completely empty. Two years of Bible school notes in a Bible. I didn't care about anything else in that car. But all those notes in just gone. Ah, I missed that Bible. I wish I had that Bible. I still have the Danish Bible from when I spent time overseas. I can't read it for the life of me, but it means something to me. I told you that I appreciated later on that I learned that my parents did have some sort of heritage. Part of the reason I learned that was one time in the back of the truck, we were going to get our Christmas tree, and we always went to the same little church where the Boy Scouts put on a fundraiser and gave the tree, and we were driving by this time, and we were always excited to go there, and we were in the back of the truck, of course, and we just started driving right by the church. And I'm pounding on the window. Dad, you, you missed the stop. You missed the stop. And he says, no, look at the sign. No, look at the sign. Look at that rack of fire sign. So I turn around just in time to see, you know, Boy Scouts, Xmas trees, whatever. And I go, what are you doing? And he screams through the window. If they can't put his name on the sign, they don't get my money. <laughs> With a few more expletives added in. So it was a little crazy with some mixed messages, but I learned early on there was something for them. It, they, they, it meant something to them, this, this God, this Creator. It was important. I would learn it later on, too, after my dad passed. He, he left me a key. In fact, he met with me the year before he passed, and he said, if things, you know, ever go sour, I want you to be the only one with the combination to this place and show me the top file cabinet that was locked and it's where all of his important papers were and so when he passed um a couple of weeks later i came home from boise where he was and i got went into his office and unlocked the file cabinet and in there were his his will and his checkbooks and all of his retirement income and all the information i needed and i found these bibles and i knew that my dad had a tough time as a kid he and his parents Struggled to get along. He fought with his dad a lot. And when he was 12, they shipped him to Vancouver, Washington, to a boy's home where he stayed until he was about 14 or 15. And then they moved him back home. What I didn't know, and I found out here by opening these Bibles and seeing that this one was presented to Kenny Ferris at the Clark County Gospel Crusade in Vancouver, Washington, July 28, 1957. Dr. Larry Johnson and Bill Jackson, we love you, Kenny. These were with his most important possession. They meant something to him. And I didn't know much about my dad's faith except that he had one. About two years before he died, he bought a guitar and he asked me to teach him how to play. And the only songs he wanted to learn were Elvis gospel tunes. My great grandfather left me this Bible, the New Testament. Printed in the late 1800s. His name was Virgil Thacker. Inside it's inscribed, Wishing Virgil Thacker a very happy Christmas time. From Mrs. Thompson, 1909. I love that I have this. I love that there's some sort of spiritual heritage that I sort of ignored as I was growing up and didn't think I had. I, Being a psalmist, being a writer, a lover of worship, I'm also happy that my grandfather passed down this 
Voices of Praise Methodist Hymnal from 1874. I love that I have these things. I have some keepsakes and mementos that are important to me. I've got this Bible. I love this Bible right here. This Bible comes to me from my beautiful wife, Cindy. What a great gift. You know, Cindy and I started dating when we were the summer, I think, between my 14th and 15th year. I think I turned 15 that summer when we first met. Um, I absolutely fell head over heels with her. Love at first sight. She didn't feel the same. We dated off and on for about eight years, mostly off. We got pretty serious with other people at different times. Found our way back together again. We ministered together through high school. It was a great friendship in the Lord. We were junior high youth directors for a while, assistant senior high youth directors, spent summers together at every camp you could imagine. And then a time came, and through those years, by the way, I remember telling her at different distinct times when I really felt it, because you know at 15, you know what love is, right? I mean, when I really felt it, I remember telling her, I love you. And I'm waiting for that response, and it never came. She was so much more mature and smarter than I am and still is. Time came after high school. We were both in college. And after college, she was going to go on an adventure to Australia. I didn't know how long she'd be there or when she was coming back. And so I met with her. We kind of reconnected right before that again. And I really felt things pretty strongly. And I let her know that I love her and I'd be there when she got back. And she let me know she did not love me and I should not wait. So um, so years passed. When she moved back from Australia, her family had moved to Vancouver, Washington by that time, so she moved down there, and we spent a couple years apart. Didn't hear from her in Australia. Didn't hear from her when she moved back. I made plans to go uh, international. I was going to go live in Denmark and do some traveling and ministering. And She got wind that I was leaving, and she wanted to reconnect, and we did. And I went and saw her the day before I left, She drove up from Vancouver so we could reconnect, and it was a weird, awkward time. I was still playing some emotional games with her, and it was was just a weird meeting. But when I left, I just had this sense in my heart that it wasn't done. You know, I don't know else to say it. So I went, I got home, and my mom was like, so how did that go? You know, know, moms are always so protective of their sons. You're giving your heart to her again. I said, I don't know, it went okay. And she said, so is she going to stay in town and see you off the airport tomorrow? And I said, no, she went home to Vancouver. Then I thought about it, and I thought, but you know, I think I just might see her tomorrow. I mean, I just felt like it wasn't done. So the next day, I'm at the airport. I'm saying goodbyes to my family. I don't know how long I'm going to be gone. The trip's planned for a little over a year. It could be a couple. And as this back when there was no security, right, your family could basically walk you to your seat on the airplane. And so they're all standing. I'm literally waiting to get in the door, and it's a very emotional time. It's the first time I've been this far away from home at all. Um, in fact, I remember my dad hugging me, and my dad saying, I love you, and I'm proud of you. And it's the first time I remember him saying that. So I'm starting to break. I mean, I did not expect that. And over my dad's shoulder, here comes Cindy walking down the terminal with a backpack. And she hands me this backpack, and it's a care package. And so um, I was pretty excited to see her. And she said, before you go, I need to tell you something. And I said, what? And she said, I love you. And I said, I know it's always been you. It has always been you. I got on the plane, and I opened up the care package, and there was all the candy you could possibly want. There was some Amy Grant cassettes and Steve Camp cassettes, and, and there was this Bible. 
It's meant something to me ever since. And then I realized that wasn't the first time she had said she loved me. Because I also found a little, remember the old mini cassette recorders that you used to use for like reporters and stuff, little tiny mini cassette in there? I found a mini cassette and I started playing it. And it was Cindy's beautiful voice telling me all these stories as she was driving back up to the airport from Vancouver. You can hear the windshield wipers in the background. You hear the scratchy old cassette noise. And, and she's telling me about her life in Vancouver and Australia and all the things we had missed over the last few years that she was catching me up on. And she was singing these old great worship church worship songs we used to sing when we were leading kids at camps and and then she stopped and she said something so much has happened in my heart this last week these last two weeks that I need to share with you and I've been asking the Lord when I can accept this when um, when it can be reality and it is he's given me the okay given me um, the peace to let it out, and that is that I love you. How many people can say, 28 years later, they can still hear the voice of the first time, their loved ones said, I love you? And i got to tell you something, it means something to me today, <laughs> just hearing it again, like it meant to me then after all those years. So it's okay that we have some special mementos and times and right our time and walk with the Lord can be emotional and we have some attachment to that. But my fear today is that that's all it becomes. I mean, the Bible should mean something. 66 different books written over 40 different authors over a time span of 1,500 years or more. Yet there remains this consistency of prophetic truth and thread throughout the whole thing. I mean, a consistency that you can't even get if you put the church council in a room and ask him to come up with a rule on how to use the new van. But over 1,500 years in three different languages, it's precept on precept. It's truth that confirms truth that confirms truth. It's absolutely unimaginable in the literary world. And God gave it to us like a gift. And the question is, do we become too familiar with it? Is it just another one of those important devotional things that's in our life? Does it even make the list when we consider those things that are really part of our ethos? So let me ask you this. Why is it important that the Word of God, the Holy Scripture, become part of our ethos? Well, first, and these are in your handouts, is so that we can discover God, His great love for us, and His will for our lives. We can discover God, His great love for us, and His will for our lives. You see, the first and foremost premise of the Word is to learn about our Father. It's His nature, His unfathomable love for us, His desire for us, and how He would have us live our lives, and how He would have us love one another. We must discover that. And if you've discovered it once, you know it is worth discovering again and again and again. In my senior year in high school, I had only been a Christian about two and a half, three years, and I was struggling with some things in theology. You know, when you're a Christian two and a half, three years, I was, I was all about kind of the worship music, and I sort of kept my word to some really simple New Testament scriptures. But I finally started digging a little deeper, and I wanted to understand some things about theology. And a friend of mine from Bible school gave me a book called Man, Sin, and Salvation. 
And I thought, I'm going to dig this thing. I'm going to get some nuggets out of it. I'm going to start understanding, go deeper in my faith. I got about two pages into that snoozer, and it was like reading a German phone book. I mean, I could not understand the Catholicism and Hibbalisms and Evangelicalisms. And, oh, man, I just, I was done. I was, there was no way I was going to be a New Testament, single scripture, Jesus loves me, this I know kind of guy. Fast forward a couple years, I'm in my second year of Bible college, and I have to take a theology class. It's required. So I choose one taught by Dr. Tom Christensen. Dr. Tom Christensen was a great guy. He had been an advisor in my first year. He and his family lived close to the church campus. He had had me over for dinner several times. I'd never had him in class, but I really fell in love with him. I kind of found myself in his office a lot, you know, just hanging out. I got to know his younger son. Uh, his younger son played soccer at Issaquah High School. I was an assistant coach there um, at the time just for one year, so I got to know him and the family that way. I got to know his daughter. She was in my class at Bible College. We would later, she would later go uh, international, too, and she was one of the ones who was key in bringing me to Denmark, and we spent some time over there. Great family. I was so excited to finally have a class with Dr. Tom. And I got in there the first day, and he handed out the textbook. And the textbook was Man, Sin, and Salvation. Interesting note at the bottom of the textbook that I had never noted before. It was written by Dr. Tom Christensen. And I thought, Lord, have mercy. I love this guy enough that I cannot fall asleep in his class, but I am not going to get through this book. And this interesting thing happened when Dr. Tom taught out of man's sin and salvation. It became alive. It became alive. It's still, I keep that book in my file cabinet. I've gone back there often for nuggets when I've needed them, for notes. And I learned something that day. I learned this. When you hear the word whispered directly from the author, it becomes a lie. The Bible has got to be more than something we scan through in the morning just to check the box. Do you think God is really interested that you got up at 5.30 this morning and did your 15 minutes? He's interested in you. He wants to become alive to you. In my first year at Bible college, I was very excited to take any class I could get with Dr. Lowell Stein. This guy was a bundle of energy, amazing for his age. Phenomenal. Led all these tours to Israel. The problem was he only taught Old Testament classes. Whew. Old Testament was like right up there with theology for me. There was no, I stayed so far away from the Old Testament when I was a young Christian. I could not handle everybody begetting the begotters who begot the begun's. All that stuff, I'd, I would, I'd read five scriptures in and I was snoozing, man. I was snoozing. It was like NyQuil to my soul. <laughs> I had totally, intentionally avoided the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, and the Hivites. In fact, I thought the Jebusites were an R&B band on Soul Train. But then I had to take the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And Dr. Lowell Stein made that book come alive. It was amazing for me to learn that Noah's Ark wasn't a pretty painting above the crib on the wall, but that it was about this phenomenal flood that wiped out mankind. I don't know about you, but my mama never painted dead people floating on the nursery wall. But then it was even more than that. It was about God's love enough to save his people and the hope of a rainbow. New Testament popping up everywhere. Phenomenally taught. The Word 
became alive. Most of our grade in Dr. Lowellstein's class came from the papers we wrote throughout the quarter. But we did have a final. It was an interesting class. It was an evening class. It was two hours, three nights a week. There was a ten-minute break in the two hours. And it was the only evening class at the school at the time. And so during the evenings is when the janitors were cleaning the classrooms. So every night we would hear the janitor mopping the hallways and going through each classroom. And then when we took our ten-minute break, he'd come into the class real quick and mop it. And I remember he was amazing because he'd have to put up all the chairs, mop the floor, and put down all the chairs in ten minutes. And every night he did. And this time, the break was over. We came back. It was time for our final. And our finals were face down on our desk. And when we all sat down and we were all ready, Dr. Stein said, flip it over and do your final. And we flipped it over and there was one question across the top. What's the name of the janitor who comes into our room every night? And everybody started scrambling. What? I don't get it. What does this have? We just spent a quarter studying this. I don't get it. And his words were profound. God's word, and particularly the Old Testament, has always been about his love for his people. It's always been about you. And if you don't get that we are to be about our love for his people, enough that you don't even know this guy's name by now, then you have failed to learn anything from my class. Profound. Not only profound, but awesome. Because by day at the school, I worked in the janitorial department for extra money, and I knew Carl really well. He was a really great guy. Oh, man, I scored. Yeah, yeah, my college days. You see, discovering the heart of God and what the Holy Scriptures are all about. And it's a process that's never-ending. We should still be doing it every day. Discovering, digging, deeper, discovering. The Bible says, can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? It's a never-ending process of discovery. And far too often in my life, I have let the desire for quick facts and my need for answers derail me from the journey of discovery. Most of you know this about me, and the rest who don't probably won't be surprised. I like to know. I need to be in the know. I want answers. I want facts. I cannot stand change. And by change, I mean, you said we were going to meet at 5, and it's 5.20. And now our plans have to change. I can't stand change. We were going to do this next year on this vacation, but now our plans change. We were going to put this much money aside every week, and now our plans change. I was going to work, and today this is how I was going to spend my day, but something came up with my boss's schedule, and now my plans change. And Wayne's heart goes into a little bit of a flutter, because he likes control. Can I tell you something about people that like control? They struggle with faith. Faith is so the opposite of control. So when I live the way that is comfortable for me, my way ends up with this very small God that fits into this convenient package. And it works. That's the problem is it works for me every day for a while until I run into crisis, until my 
continually need to put God in a package, doesn't allow my family to have faith or move in faith or my pastor or the church when he wants to have vision and I need answers. Am I supporting him by putting God in a box? Am I living the way God wants me to by putting him? See, the problem is this. I open up the scriptures then. And I read about the God who wiped out a world with a flood and who met us at the cross. I read about a God who says, get up, take up your mat and walk. And I read about a God who says, Lazarus, come forth. And it doesn't look like the life that I'm living. And I realize it's because I've taken the Scripture, the God of the Word incarnate, and I've kind of packaged him a little bit in my ten minutes every morning. It's five sometimes every other morning. God wants to meet us in a profound place. The second reason why we need to desire the Word become part of our ethos is so that we can continue to follow that which we've discovered. It is not just good enough to discover it. We have to continue to dig deeper and rediscover. There are wells to be dug. You see, when I live my life my way, it leads to a loss of mystery. Because it's all about my answers. But a loss of mystery leads to a loss of majesty. Write that down. A loss of mystery leads to a loss of majesty. And when I choose a journey of discovery and unpacking mysteries every day, I find myself back in a place of awe and majesty where God can breathe because I'm open. We need to continue to discover what we've discovered. I know people who are so in love with the Word, and I want to be so much like them. I want to be like them. I'm attracted to them. I find some of my closest friends are that way, and it's no, no surprise to me that I have found myself siding up with people like this. It's no surprise to me that I want to serve a senior pastor who is so attracted to the fragrance of the Word. I love that about Pastor Dan Burst. I love that about Pastor Randy Ford and Kathy Ford, that they still believe that to count all things they've gained as loss for the knowledge and wonderment and glory of knowing Christ. I love that about Pete Wilmot, that last night when he texted me and said, I'm excited for tomorrow, and I texted him back and said, good, send me your message because I need one. <laughs> and his response to me was not, I believe in you. But he does. His response to me was not, you can do it. I've heard you before. You're good. His response was a psalm, was a word, was a scripture. I love that. I love that last summer when I went to see a friend of mine preach the word, I was sitting with his wife after service, and she we were just talking about how life was going and what was going on. And she said, you know something, now that you've shared that, I've got this word for you. And it's from Psalm 63. And it's my flesh thirsts for you and my soul longs for you. And I just want to encourage you, Wayne, don't stop thirsting and longing for the Lord. And I needed that word. I was like, that's a good word. I received that from you. And she said, well, you didn't receive it from me. You received it from somebody special. And I said, who? Thinking she was going to say the Holy Spirit. 
And she said, from you. I said, what are you talking about? And she opened up her Bible. She went right to the Scripture. And by the way, as she's opening the Bible, I'm remembering a story that she once told me about this Bible. It's a story about how her neighbor, some 12 or 13 years earlier, started coming over to her house for coffee. And they would go through Scriptures, and she was pouring in, planting seeds, breathing that Holy Spirit Word of God. And one day she said, you know what, why don't you just take this Bible? You can have it. And so my friend took the Bible, and it became her Bible. And if you know her today, you know that she is a person who breathes in that Scripture enough that she didn't have to go to it to tell me what it said and knew it was for me. But the amazing thing was when she turned it toward me, and I'm remembering the story of how she received her Bible years earlier, she points to the Scripture that she gave me, and lo and behold, this is what she pointed to. A note in her Bible that said, November 2008, Wayne shared this word for me during worship. See, a word that I had had six years earlier from the pulpit and said, this is for somebody. She said, this is for me, and she wrote it down, and she breathed it in. Some six years later, she was saying, this is for you. The word did not come back, Lloyd. And it spoke to my heart. And I am so thankful that Pete and Monica are those kind of people. And I am so thankful that 13 years before, Debbie Kuykendall decided to go next door and meet the new neighbor. The word is alive, living like a two-edged sword. We need a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Those verses presuppose something very simple. They presuppose that there is darkness. We're going to encounter storms and darkness and lies all day long, every day. And not only at work, in the church, in the media, and in your own mind. Oh my gosh, I could tell you the lies I was hearing last night. You know, if you blow this again, Pastor Dan will never ask you one more time. I mean, it's just something. And I know all, and all God's people are like, Amen. What? Let's email Pastor Dan and get him on. I mean, it's just something. Every day when I'm at work and something passes by and I say, I'm done. It's not for me. I've I've arrived at as far as I'm going to go. Those are lies. And we all encounter lies every day. And the truth is this. The truth is that the truth is. The truth is the truth is. And it's sitting right there waiting to be breathed in. I want to ask you, who will help you in those moments? When all around you is troubled, how will you to remember to be still and know that I'm God? When life can get dark and the storms rage and it closes in, how will you recall that I am the way, the truth, and the life? When your enemies mock you and they have their way, who is going to remind you that no weapon formed against you shall prosper? When you feel sickness and pain, where else are you going to read? Tell me what other book will you find that by His stripes you are healed? When you're tempted in one ear, what still small voice will whisper in the other? No temptation is overtaking you except that is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted... He will also provide a way out that you can endure it. And when you feel alone and nobody understands, who else has the right 
to say to you that I will never leave you nor forsake you. And when you've experienced tragedy, unimaginable, the pain of divorce, the loss of a parent, the loss of a child. Christian platitudes don't work. And can I tell you something? The loving arms of loving Christians who love you sincerely don't work. I don't know about you, but in those moments, and I've had a couple, my heart grows cold. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to see you. And the last thing I want you to tell me is that it's going to be okay. I don't want to hear it from you. So who else has the ability to get past this thing I've put up and speak into my soul with the word that the Lord is your shepherd? Wayne, you shall not want, because he maketh you to lie down in green pastures and leadeth you beside the still water. He will restore to your soul. You don't feel like it right now, Wayne. But listen. He will restore your soul. Yea, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you shall fear no evil, for He is still with you. His rod and His staff, they will comfort you. He prepares a table before you in the presence of your enemies and anoints your head with oil. His cup runneth over. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow you all the doors of your house. And right now, where you dwell, you don't feel like it. But you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Who else? Where else? That's the word. We need to continually search for that which we've already discovered in an effort and journey to rediscover. We cannot allow them to become too familiar. In fact, if we allow them to be new, if you'll choose to continue to follow and rediscover, those words will pop off the page new to you every time. It'll be like you've never read them. It happened to me last week. I don't want to get into the full story, but I'm just going to tell you. I was in Genesis 22, and I have been seeking some answers for some very specific questions in my life about a sadness that I just can't seem to leave in my past. About a disillusionment and a shame and a disappointment. Oh, God is good. Don't get me wrong. But these are some very deep things he's trying to ask me to wrestle with. Right? Deep calls unto deep, and there's a new level of maturity for me that's going to come with a new level of sacrifice. And I've been struggling since November to really find the answers and the faith to move past it. And I opened up Genesis 22 today, or this last week, in the story of, of God taking Abraham, or Isaac, God choosing to send Abraham up with Isaac for the sacrifice. And I have known for a long time that this is a foreshadowing of Christ and his sacrifice. And I have known for a long time what the scripture means, and I didn't think I was going to get anything new out of it, but I was reading along. And there are a couple things that really popped to me in this season of my life. First of all, when Abraham tells Isaac, or when God tells Abraham, I'm going to send you up there, he says this, go to the offering, go, go send your offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. He doesn't tell him where he's going right away. I'm in a season where I want to know, God, I'm wanting some answers right now. He's saying, this is about the journey, Wayne. You're in the season. You're, you, the destination is the journey, and we've been on it, and you've been missing it. I will tell you when you get there. But now, just follow my direction and go. And then Abraham took off. He took a couple servants with him. He took the wood for the offering. He took his son Isaac. And there's a lot here that we won't get into this morning. But there came a time where he had to stop and he waited for three days 
This was amazing to me that he waited for three days. He didn't know what to do next, so he just waited and dwelled. Oh, when I get to the point where I don't want to, I do not dwell well. I do not dwell well. Just sit and wait. That does not go well with my need for schedule and change. No change, you know. But he waited. And then the Lord told him where to go and gave him direction. And he said to his servants, you stay back here. The lad and I will go. I love people. And I feel comfortable in my life when I'm surrounded by brothers. And I think we should, by the way. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. And when I go through my struggles, I love taking Pastor Dan through them with me. And I love taking Pete Wilmot through them with me and, and my, my brother Darren and you know this handful of men that have known everything about the deepest tissues of my life. There is no secrets hidden from them. But can I tell you this? There will come a time where what God wants to do with you is so very personal that your destination will only come with separation. Your destination will only come with separation. And I know that God is telling me not to not include these men in my life and stay accountable, but it's time to go deep. It's time to really, really meet me. When Abraham got Isaac up to the mountain, of course, most of you know the story. They packed the offering. They put Isaac on the, on the altar. By the way, most of us think that Isaac was just a submissive child. He could easily tie up and he must have just been crying and wailing and not knowing. Most scholars, although the truth is the scriptures don't tell us how old he is, but by doing everything they can do around the scriptures and within context, most scholars will tell you that Isaac was between the age of 18 and 25. Isaac had to lay himself on that altar to be bound. He had to be obedient to his father as his father was obedient to the father. And Abraham stretched out his hand, knife in hand, about to wield it, come down, And only in that moment, when he was still following the direction that he had been given, what he had discovered, did God say, Abraham, stop! Because you have been faithful, look around. And Abraham looked around, and there was a ram in the thicket, tangled up, just waiting to be offered. Now, two things that I've learned. One is scholars will tell you that where they were on that mountain... Rams do not congregate. It's too high of an altitude. In my mind, what I like to presuppose and picture is that while Abraham was separating and with each step towards his destination, his provision was being drawn up the other side and he couldn't see it because if he had seen the whole picture, he wouldn't have followed with obedience. And the Lord started telling me, I know that you're sitting here thinking that everything should be okay with you right now. But if you stay on the journey with me, your provision will be there when we get there. So many other things were opened up to me. And I just want to share those few with you because I want to say this. His word can become new to you every morning. I can't tell you how many times I've read that passage. But last week, that's what I needed to hear. And it was good. For my soul, we must continue to hear and listen and follow that which we've already discovered. My grandmama used to tell me, boy, you got two ears and one mouth. Use them proportionally. In my walk with the Lord, I tend to speak too much. And the thing is, in my walk with the Lord, I actually, it's not a two to one ratio. It's a four to one ratio. I got two eyes for which to read the word. I've got two ears for which to hear the word. And I got to tell you that my journey right now is not four to one. 
Lastly, it needs to become part of our ethos because we must never stop hungering and seeking after the one who hungers and seeks after us. We must never stop hungering and seeking for the one who hungers and seeks after us. You see, once we become a Christian, the responsibility to continually hunger and seek after God, it shifts to us. It is ours. So many people, and I'm not even going to say so many people, I'm just going to say Wayne. Kenneth Wayne Ferris Jr. can live his life in Christian cruise control. And can I tell you something? God still loves me, but I'm not exactly pleasing Him. He's not impressed with my check the box in my ten minutes. He is not impressed that... Are you impressed when somebody kisses you because they have to? Oh, come here. Let's just get it over with, Pastor Dan. Christian cruise control. And if that's you and that resonates at all with you, I want to invite you today on a deeper journey with me. A journey that's aggressively, we are passive in the church. And there are some things God calls us to passivity and peace to, but this is not one of them. He calls us to aggressively hunger and aggressively seek after Him. In Philippians, Paul says that what things were gained to me, I've counted as a loss for Christ. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Some versions say dung. He says all these things, and Paul had it all. All these things I count as a loss for the glory of knowing Christ. And why do I say that? I say that to say this. We can talk about discovery all we want, but you will not do it unless you firmly believe that what you're going to discover is worth it. We must stay in that place of majesty where seeking Him is still the highlight, and not just a highlight, the highlight of our life. Sports Center's top ten is way, way, way low on the list. To touch God every day, to find Him, to embrace Him, to know Him new every day. Oh, we've got to be a person that will run after Him like that. It cannot be because of title or gain, but because we are absolutely convinced that He's the ultimate object of our affection, the ultimate meter of our needs, and all we could ever want to need. How many times have we sat in this church or any church and saying, You're all I want. You're all I've ever needed. I'm thinking of McDonald's or maybe KFC after church. <laughs> this is me. Is He all you want? Is He your utmost pursuit? And is it found? In those scriptures. I love this Bible. Not as much as I love the Lord or my family. But it means a lot to me. Cindy and I went through a tough time. I've told the story before. Most of you know. In fact, many of you walked us through it. Uh, we fell into a tough patch. And I fell into a place in a rhythm in Christian cruise control where I wanted and needed other things, I, particularly in my relationship with Cindy. See, I wanted God every day, but I needed Cindy every day. And when you have a God-shaped hole in your heart and you try to fill it with anything other than God, it's just painful and wrong. And it does not 
satisfy. You can hunger and thirst after that, and it will never satisfy. And when you try to fill it with people other than God, you will kill them. And I did. And Cindy and I divorced. And we spent about four and a half years apart. And I tell you, the first year I was just trying to hold it together and choose life every minute. Keep breathing, Wayne. And then the second year I kind of started going through some of that anger and I was ticked. And I remember throwing away and burning most everything that reminded me of our marriage. And I was hurt and I was in a lot of pain. And I know a lot of you have been there before. It's not new to me. And I remember finding this Bible by accident one day. And all I could hear was her voice. And remember, how could the person who told me they loved me do this to me? Of course, she didn't do anything to me. I did it to her. But that was my pain in the moment. And I threw it away. And I pulled it back out. And I threw it away the next day. And I pulled it back out. And then one day in a fit of rage, I was at the top of the stairs in the house I was living in, a house that was not my own, a house that no longer had my kids, a house that no longer had my furniture. And I threw this thing over the stairway across the room. Never knew where it landed. A few months later, God started working on me again. I started choosing to believe He was still real. I started trying to crawl back to a place of some sort of seed of faith. And I cried out to the Lord with my guitar in hand and I laid before him on the floor and I literally fell asleep trying to play some sort of a worship song or some sort of a prayer that would not come. And when I woke up hours later, I was laying next to the couch and I looked under the couch. There was this Bible. So I pulled it out and I opened it. And I started clipping some pages and I found some pen marks in 2 Samuel. So I stopped and I just started reading. And I read the story, and we don't have time to get into it this morning, of Mephibosheth. And if you don't know, Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, whom David loved. And when Saul and Jonathan were killed and their kingdom destroyed, Mephibosheth was only five. And the servants and the nursemaids that were running and fleeing the kingdom for their safety, one of the nursemaids picked up Mephibosheth. And as she was fleeing, she dropped him and he broke both of his feet. And he was lame from that point on. And they hid him with a family that raised him in a place called Lodabar. And David took over the kingdom. He called all the servants in. And because of his honor for Saul, who had been trying to kill him, but he remained with a spirit of honor. And because of his Great love for Jonathan. He asked the servants, Are there any left of the line of Saul and Jonathan? And somebody said, Yes, the youngest, Mephibosheth, but he's, he's a cripple. You don't want anything to do with him. We, we hide him out in Gilead in this town called Labar, Lodabar. And he said, Bring him. And so they carried him there. Lodabar, by the way, literally means no pasture, no word, no communication. That's where they were hiding him in. They brought him and he laid prostrate before David and he said, what would the king do with this lowly servant? In fact, he said later on, he said, how would you even speak to a dog like me? But David seated him at the table 
I imagine him in his lameness picking him up and saying, you, and not only you, but all of your family, and not only your family, but your servants and their families will have all of Saul's kingdom. And you will eat at this table the rest of your days. And so will your descendants. And I'm asking God, I don't even know if I believe it anymore. I don't know. What are you trying to tell me? And he said, it's time to leave Lodabar. That place where there's been no word and no communication. You feel like you've been out to pasture. Because you are still a son of the king. I don't see your mistakes. Yeah, you screwed up. You didn't steward that relationship I gave you. And you hurt a daughter of the king whom I love very much. And there will be a day where I will offer you the opportunity to ask forgiveness. But today, opportunity I'm offering is to sit at the table again. It was black and white. I'd thrown it across the room. It, I hated this Bible. And all of a sudden it was fragrant. And it meant something. And it was alive. Second Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God. That word inspired is theopnostos. And it means literally God breathed. Divine breath. In fact, the root word, penosis, means a fragrant breath. And I might have known that for the very first time in that moment, that all of a sudden, it wasn't black and white words, it was something that God was breathing into a very desolate and hungry, maybe hungry for the first time in decades, spirit. And it was fragrant, it was beautiful. And I don't mean to get weird on you, but I have to tell you, in that moment, I heard Cindy's words come back to me, I love you. And I wasn't angry with her. In fact, they weren't even my wife's words. They were the girl that I met at 14 who helped lead me to the Lord. They were the words of the Holy Spirit. And I could close my eyes and I could picture them at the table saying, I know how you feel. I know you can't walk right now. It's okay. I love you. And this is still all for you. And what I want to say to you is that's what I want for you this morning. I want it for all of us. I love that you have a devotional life, but I want it to be deeper. I love that it's important to you. If it's not, I want it to be. I want it to become part of your ethos, so it can become part of our ethos as a church, that everything we do is founded on a Word of God, and not just the Bible because we can find it and cite it, but because every day, every day. So I want you to close your eyes for a second.